Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today's episode is from our mystery series, and it's a whodunit for all time. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge a sad goodbye to Phyllis Coates, the actress who played Lois Lane in George Reeves' first season of Adventures of Superman. She passed on October 15th of this year, 2023, at age 96. As for this mystery, just when you think you've got it figured out, it takes another twist. And there's a cast of suspects which will lead you to believe that maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. First, you need to meet George Reeves, the man who played Superman on TV from 1952 to 1958. The man who embodied truth, justice, and the American way in the character of Superman. I'm going to assume that all of you know who the Superman character is. He's an American superhero created for DC Comics by writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Shuster. He first appeared in 1938 in Action Comics No. 1. Superman was exactly the kind of hero we needed in 1938, and his comics did extremely well. By the early 1950s, TV was widely accepted. The baby boomer generation was ripe for TV marketing and the TV show Adventures of Superman began airing on September 19, 1952, starring a winsome, square-jawed, smiling George Reeves as the Man of Steel. He had attended my kindergarten alma mater, Pasadena City College, when it was Pasadena Junior College, then moved on to Pasadena Playhouse, where he picked up acting skills, and landed a minor role in the blockbuster movie Gone with the Wind, where he lucked into the opening scene as a red-haired Tarleton twin. He stayed busy on film, jumping from Warner to Fox to Paramount, doing B-pictures alongside of Ronald Reagan and James Cagney, never scoring a big role. And he finally enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1943 in World War II, where he was assigned the first motion picture unit, which was making training films. After the war, he returned to acting, moved to New York, got jobs at radio and TV, got married, later divorced, then returned to Hollywood in 1953, where he got a minor role in the movie From Here to Eternity, which won an Academy Award, giving Reeves the distinction of having appeared in two Best Picture films. The reason I'm giving his background before jumping into this story is to say that he was likable. He had a lot of acting experience, and he wasn't unlike a lot of others who chased the dream of being a star in motion pictures. For every star, there are a thousand others, they say, who probably just missed that one chance that could have made them wealthy and famous. Some made a living in Hollywood. Others barely hung on. And the same is true today. Very few become really famous without becoming very wealthy. But George Reeves was one of those. He was offered the role of Superman on TV and held on to it for seven years, becoming a national and even international celebrity, primarily as a children's action hero, until his untimely death at age 45 from a gunshot to the head that the coroner ruled as a suicide. But many people believed it was murder. The loss of George Reeves, Superman, was a tragedy. To the kids' world, It shook their faith in humanity and dreams in the same way that the death of President Kennedy from a sniper bullet shook the American conscience just a few years later. Superman was the man of steel. He was impervious to bullets. He was always there to help people, 
to solve crimes, to get the bad guys, to establish right and defeat wrong. News of Superman's death turned the world upside down. He was no cartoon character to these kids. Superman was a flesh-and-blood hero, and now he was dead. Of course, most parents kept it quiet, but word gets around even in the kids' world, as it does in the adult world. Superman wasn't coming back. Many people, including the police who investigated his death at his home at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive, and the coroner, believed the Man of Steel shot himself, just as many believe he was murdered. There's a very good movie about his death called Hollywoodland, starring Ben Affleck and Diana Lane, which I recommend you watch after listening to this story. And although many writers say it strayed from the facts often, I'm going to challenge that and say that it offers basically the true story, including the introduction of a private investigator who was hired by George Reeves' mother, whose job it was to find out what really happened on the fateful early morning of June 16, 1959. Was it murder? Was it an accident? Was it suicide? We'll give you the facts and the suspects and let you decide. In our story, you become the detective. Early in the morning of June 16, 1959, George Reeves, the star of the popular 50s TV series Superman, was found dead in the upstairs bedroom of his Benedict Canyon Drive home in Hollywood. According to the Los Angeles Police Department report, Reeves died of a gunshot wound to his head sometime between 12.30 a.m. and 1 a.m. Witnesses, all of whom were very high, who were downstairs in the house at the time, claimed that the gunshot occurred at 1 a.m. The police were called at approximately 1.45. Make a note that it took 45 minutes to call the police, and they arrived within 15 minutes. Present in the house at the time of the incident when the police arrived were Leonore Lemon, who had been Reeves's fiance at the time, William Bill Bliss, who lived a mile or so up the Canyon Drive, writer Robert Bob Condon, who was busy writing a biography on boxing celebrity Archie Moore, and Carol Von Ronkel, who lived a few blocks away with her husband, screenwriter Rip Von Ronkel. Up until midnight, only George, Leonore, and George's friend Robert Condon were in the house. At or near midnight, Carol Van Ronkel and William Bliss knocked on the door and were welcomed in. Carol was said to be having an affair with Bob Condon, hence her reason for being there. Many years later, Leonore Lemon would say she and Condon were sharing a bed over the garage when the shot rang out, leaving a wasted Bill Bliss and Leonore Lemon as the only ones in the main house. According to witnesses, Lemon and Reeves had been dining and drinking at a local establishment earlier in the evening in the company of writer Condon, Reeves and his fiancée, Leonore Lemon, had had an argument at the restaurant in front of Condon, and the three of them returned home. According, there had been much drinking. According to the story of the guests, Reeves went to bed at approximately 9.30, but sometime near midnight. An impromptu party began when Carol Van Ronkel, and later Bliss, arrived at the front door. Reeves angrily came downstairs in his bathrobe and complained about the noise, arguing again with Leonore Lemon regarding her rudeness in letting the party get too loud. After blowing off some steam, he stayed with the guest for a while, had a drink for a few minutes, and then retired upstairs again in a surly mood. According to the testimony of the guest, they later heard a single gunshot from upstairs. 
It isn't clear to my research if Condon and Van Ronkel were there and were questioned. It may have been just Bliss and Lemon. According to the story given, Bliss ran upstairs into Reeves' bedroom and found him lying across the bed dead, his naked body facing upward and his feet on the floor. It is believed that this corroborated Reeves' sitting position on the edge of the bed when he allegedly shot himself, after which the bullet struck his right temple about an inch above the ear, passing through his head, exiting above his left ear, and entering the ceiling. His body apparently fell back on the bed, and his thirty caliber Luger pistol, which he kept in a nearby drawer, fell between his feet. The spent cartridge somehow ended up under his back. According to the autopsy report, Reeves had taken his thirty caliber German Luger pistol, placed it near his right temple, and pulled the trigger. He died instantly and fell backwards, his feet still hanging over the bed, and his back on the mattress. The gun fell to his feet, and the shell was found underneath his back. For some reason, Reeves had contorted his head, so it was tilted upwards at the point of firing. If his death was suicide, Reeves must have held the gun with his right hand, although this in itself is suspicious, as he had injured his right hand badly in an automobile accident just a few weeks prior to his death. Make a note he was injured badly enough to file for workers' compensation. Reeves' head and hands showed no signs of gunshot residue or powder burns. Even if the actor had not placed the gun to his head at point-blank range, as is usual in suicides, it should have left some obvious marks on his forehead. Inexplicably, the shell casing was found underneath Reeves' body. Since a 9mm Luger generally ejects its shells to the right, it's hard to conceive what position the actor must have been in when he fired for the casing to have ended up underneath his back. Also, the usually superheated cartridge did not leave a burn on his back. And remember, he wasn't wearing clothes. And one can't help but wonder why Reeves was naked, as it doesn't seem logical for a man to commit suicide while totally naked. So maybe there was something going on upstairs with Leonore. And very possibly, since they'd been arguing, not a peaceful exchange. Very possibly initiated by an angry and perhaps gun-wielding Leonore. What bothered me was that he was shot in the right temple, and yet his right hand had been badly damaged in that accident. If she shot him in the right temple, my thinking was she would have to be left-handed. So I searched many images before finding one showing Leonore holding a drink, because I wanted to see if she was right or left-handed. We generally hold a drink with our most coordinated hand. I'm placing the picture showing her holding her drink with her left hand at 1001 Heroes' Facebook page, along with other pictures. Yes, she's left-handed. The police said that Reeves was shot, apparently sitting up, naked, in the right temple, the impact causing him to fall backward into the bed. There were no powder burns indicated on his temple or on his hands. If the gun was held directly to his temple, it is said that often with direct contact between barrel and skin that the body absorbs the powder burn. But considering the angle of the gun that would send the bullet to the ceiling... That's a very odd angle to take in a suicide. There is much to look at here, and no one ever explained how two bullet holes got in the floor. When asked by the police, Lemon said she was playing with the gun once and hit a picture on the wall, but not the floor. Years later, in a video interview, Lemon said she was playing with the gun once and hit a picture on the wall, but not the floor. It is possible that with records playing downstairs and Bliss barely conscious, and Van Ronkel and Condon in bed over the garage, 
which was another statement given years later by Lemon. There were multiple shots, maybe a struggle over the gun during an argument. One thing is known. Leonore Lemon made no effort to stay around for long after Reeves' death, even though the police ruled it as a suicide. She came in the next day after calling a girlfriend to meet her. While her friend dragged all the bedsheets into the shower, soaking them, Leonore packed up $4,000 worth of traveler's checks, which she later said were there for their honeymoon, plus food and liquor, and left the house for good. She never showed up for the funeral. Statements from the witnesses that were made to the police and the press essentially agree that neither Leonore Lemon nor the other guests who were at the scene made any apology for their delay in calling the police 45 minutes after hearing the fatal gunshot that killed Reeves. The shock of the death, the lateness of the hour, and their state of intoxication, as well as the guess that they took time to hide drugs and corroborate their stories, were given as reasons for the delay. Police said that all of the witnesses present were extremely inebriated and that coherent stories were very difficult to obtain from them. One report says that Van Ronkel and Condon were interviewed by the police. A later statement by Lemon contradicts that. Leonore would later say in a videotaped interview that much of that 45 minutes was taken up by the fact that she had to get lovebirds Van Ronken and Condon out of the house to protect their reputations. Van Ronkel had shown up in a slip covered by a bathrobe, and Leonore went and found clothing, which she said was a few sizes too large, that would cover Van Ronkel, after calling an old friend to come and pick her up and drive her home. As for Condon, she helped him out the door. All this to save their reputations. The police recovered the weapon, which, they said, having been recently oiled, did not show any fingerprints. There were no powder burns to the side of Reeves' temple. Also, in 1959, the L.A. police did not have the procedure in place which would perform gunpowder residue tests on either Reeves or the witnesses. That would have been a critical determiner. There was no sign of a break-in or a struggle. There was no sign of the presence of anyone else in the house. Later tests on Reeves' blood showed an alcohol level of 0.27, well above the accepted intoxication point, combined with narcotics, which Reeves may have been taking as the result of a previously mentioned recent car accident in which his brakes had suddenly failed on the sharp downhill incline near his home, causing him to crash into a retaining wall on a mountain curve. Your job as a detective is to find the body shop and find out just how those brakes failed. You'll also need to interview the witnesses, which won't be an easy job, as no one in Hollywood wants to be associated with the death of a celebrity. They're going to tell you that the police already got all their information, and no, they don't want to talk to you. So you'll have to work with second or third party word of mouth. And a lot of interesting information, none of it useful in court, will come your way. We'll return with Who Killed Superman? The story of the mysterious death of actor George Reeves, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. I'll save you the trouble of contacting the body shop. The owner was questioned, not by the police, but by a private investigator. And he said that the brake fluid was missing, meaning it had been removed prior to the accident. By the way, there had been two other accidents just prior to that one, one resulting in Reeves' car being smashed into by a truck, the other leaving him narrowly missed in a potential head-on collision. Was this the result of drunk driving? 
or attempts on his life. In contemporary news articles, Reeves' fiancée, Leonor Lemon, attributed Reeves' alleged suicide to depression caused by his failed career and inability to find more work. The report made by the Los Angeles police states, Reeves was depressed. LAPD Sergeant B.A. Peterson, recanting Leonore Reeves' testimony to the police, was quoted as saying, Miss Lemon blurted to Bliss, He's probably going to go shoot himself. Bliss also testified that a noise was heard upstairs. She continued, He's opening a drawer to get a gun. A shot was heard. Lemon then said, See there, I told you so. If that isn't a suspicious statement, I don't know what is. Bliss was probably so hammered that she could have told him that after the fact, after she had come downstairs. She later denied having said this in later interviews, saying she was not clairvoyant and would have had no idea of that event taking place, and who would have been able to hear a drawer being opened in an upstairs bedroom. It does sound like drunk witnesses giving a quickly rehearsed story. Maybe. After all, they waited 45 minutes before calling the police. The police weren't looking too hard for the murder angle. After all, this was Hollywood. Careers were on the line. In Hollywood, everyone slept with everyone, and booze and drugs were breakfast and dinner, and the witnesses didn't want their names in the next day's news. Reeves was depressed. For the police, the best and easiest call was to say it was suicide. Plain and simple probably helped along with a steady dose of alcohol. George Reeves started his acting career in a big way in 1939, appearing as one of the Tarleton brothers in Gone with the Wind in the opening scene, that film being the most profitable film of its time and still considered to be one of the greatest ever. He also received critical acclaim for his appearance in So Proudly We Hail. The director of that film, Mark Sandridge, thought Reeves had the looks and charisma to be a leading man and had planned to champion Reeves's career, hoping to turn him into the next Clark Gable. The plan was derailed in 1943 when Reeves was inducted in the Army to fight in World War II, but they needed his talent not on the front, but in doing Army training films. When he returned after the war, his mentor, Sandrich, died unexpectedly. Reeves had lost his access to the fast track, he was now lost among the thousands of returning actors trying to resume their careers after the war. He took some temporary work in New York on Broadway in a show sponsored by the Air Force called Winged Victory. By the time the stage show ended and he tried to get back into the movies, Reeves was a forgotten man in Hollywood. He spent the next five years struggling to find work in low-budget B pictures and kiddie serials like The Adventures of Sir Galahad. Reeves was depressed and disappointed at the downward spiral his once-promising career had taken. He began a romance with society girl Tony Mannix, the wife of MGM vice president Eddie Mannix. Eddie and Tony Mannix had an open marriage and were allowed to see other people. Tony fell in love with Reeves and even went so far as to buy him a house and a car. Tony was seven years older than Reeves, and she fell hard for him. She bought the house at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive, and added to that basically anything he wanted or needed. Her husband, Eddie Mannix, kept a mistress, and their marriage, to all who knew or cared, was an open one. They were Catholic, and the word was then that the Catholic religion frowned heavily on divorce, so many couples kept the marriage but fooled around. I can't speak to that, and I'm not judging anybody, but that was the word on the street. 
Eddie Mannix was said to have mob ties and was said to be the fixer for friends' problems. It has been surmised that when Reeves broke Tony's heart, Eddie tried to do the fixing for her. Hence the car accidents. Did he go so far as to hire someone to murder Reeves? Many doubt that. Of course, a car accident is a different thing. Accidents happen. Reeves was offered the role of Superman in a low-budget film, Superman vs. the Mole Man, in 1950, which was meant to be a test run for a potential weekly Superman television series. And it did well. A steady role as Superman was offered to Reeves, but he was reluctant to take the role, not considering it a serious acting part. But he needed the money, so he took the part. The film did well enough to lead to a television series, and Reeves became the star of Adventures of Superman in 1951. The show became a big hit, especially with younger viewers. Reeves became a national celebrity. He even appeared as himself in an episode of I Love Lucy. He began doing live Superman shows around the country and appearing in commercials as Superman. It was at one of these shows that George Reeves came within a few seconds of being shot. There was a crowd of maybe 50 people, adults and kids, mostly sitting in a set of bleachers which were present for the crowd, when a boy appeared from the crowd holding a handgun. The handgun was nickel-plated and did not look like a toy to Reeves, who suddenly dropped to one knee at the boy's level as he walked toward his hero, aiming the gun straight at him, his finger on the trigger. Reeves could see the bullets showing in their chambers in the revolver cylinder. He said to the boy, Why do you want to shoot me? And the boy answered, I want to see the bullets bounce off you. To which Reeves replied, But they might bounce off me and hit your friends in the crowd, and that would be bad. The boy paused just long enough, and Reeves was able to remove the gun from his hands. This scene was played well in the movie Hollywood Land. Of course, I checked the story to see if it was made up by scriptwriters, but no, it happened. Just one of the risks of playing Superman. Although the show Adventures of Superman was popular, Reeves' salary was relatively low for a TV star, and he resented being on television. He had wanted to stay in film. He was reportedly not happy with the quality of the scripts, which he considered simplistic and juvenile. Reeves' character was straight out of the Superman comic book series. He played mild-mannered newspaper reporter Clark Kent, aided by cub reporter Jimmy and his female reporter counterpart Lois Lane. He wanted to bring more depth to the characters of Superman slash Clark Kent, but he was overruled. He was angry at being stuck playing a one-dimensional comic book character. After all, every episode was the same. Crook enters a building, takes Lois Lane hostage after knocking out Jimmy Olsen. Superman crashes through wall, facing Crook, hands on hips. Crook fires six shots, which all bounce off Superman's chest. Then the Crook gives up just before police arrive. Sometimes Superman flies to save people stuck on ledges, to stop criminals, and to rescue kids and dogs. Next episode. Worse still, Reeves had a clause in his contract that said he couldn't take other work while he was under contract to do Superman. Jack Larson, who played Jimmy Olsen on the series, claimed that Reeves once said, If Mark Sandridge hadn't died, I wouldn't be in this monkey suit. As previously stated, Mark Sandridge had gotten Reeves much of his work, including his part in Gone with the Wind. Frustration was mounting. Millions of young kids idolized him, and Superman paraphernalia, 
like lunchboxes, action figures, and Superman costumes, was everywhere. By the mid-1950s, Reeves was in his 40s and was fed up with the Superman series. He felt his career was slipping away, along with his youth, and that he would never get the chance to recapture the success he'd come so close to before the war. Although he took his image as a role model very seriously, he was trying to get out of his contract. He was actually very happy when the series was put on indefinite hiatus after seven years because of rising production costs and dipping ratings. In 1958, the show was canceled, or so he thought, and he was free of Superman. He formed his own production company and came up with a pilot for a show called Port of Entry, but his money was running out and the show fell through due to lack of support. An excellent boxer, he arranged an exhibition fight with middleweight champ Archie Moore, and Reeves was looking forward to the outside-his-Superman role notoriety that that fight would provide. Around this time, Reeves broke up with Tony Mannix and hooked up with a younger woman from New York named Leonore Lemon. He had met her at Toot Shore, a New York City night spot which was popular to Sinatra and his crowd as well as others. I used to collect old music, and I remember a duet by Sinatra and his pal Sammy Davis, entitled Me and My Shadow, in which famous restaurant Toot Shore is mentioned. Mannix reportedly took the breakup very hard. Reeves and Lemon were living together in the house that Mannix had bought for Reeves. But now the house was being besieged with anonymous phone calls, most likely from a very angry ex-lover. Changing the phone number didn't help, according to a later interview with Leonore Lemon. ABC then announced that they wanted to bring the Superman series back on the air. Reeves, unable to find work, and now in his mid-40s, reluctantly agreed to return to the role again, although he did negotiate a good salary increase for the proposed eighth season. Think about it. Would you, at age 45, feel fit enough to run around in a skin-tight neoprene suit playing an ageless man of steel? The workouts must have been endless. Many people, especially those who knew him well, believed that George Reeves committed suicide. The fact that he was a heavy drinker and on strong barbiturates placed him in a high-risk group for suicide. But if you were trying to kill him, all you would have to do is make it look like a drunken accident or a suicide, and the investigation probably wouldn't even get off the ground. Reeves' incredulous mother, Helen Besselow, employed attorney Jerry Geisler and the Nick Harris Detective Agency to investigate Reeves' death. Their operatives included a fledgling detective named Milo Spiriglio, who would later falsely claim to have been the primary investigator. A cremation of Reeves' body was postponed. No substantial new evidence was ever uncovered, but Reeves' mother never accepted the conclusion that her son had committed suicide. She also publicly denied that her son planned to marry Leonore Lemon because he had never told her. However, he had allegedly announced the engagement to his friends and occasionally called her my wife. And here's where the controversy kicks in. While the official story given by Lemon to the police placed her in the living room with party guests at the time of the shooting, statements from Fred Crane, who was Reeves's friend and colleague from Gone with the Wind, put Leonore Lemon either inside or in direct proximity to Reeves's bedroom, minimally as a witness to the shooting. According to Crane, Bill Bliss, who was there that night in the house, had told neighbor Millicent Trent that after the shot rang out, and while Bliss was having a drink, Leonore Lemon came downstairs and said, 
Tell them I was down here. Tell them I was down here. In an interview with Carl Glass, Crane expanded on this. It needed to be said, and that's the way I heard it from Millie as it was told to her by Bill Bliss. Janet Bliss and Millie were very close friends. I met Millie at Bill and Janet's house up in Benedict Canyon on Eastern Drive. We lived on the same street. This story, although purely hearsay, would support the fact that it took nearly 45 minutes for the group at the house to report Reeves' death. They were trying to come up with a story. This explanation places Leonore Lemon upstairs with Reeves at the time of his death. Another reason to be suspicious. Several people had a motive to kill Reeves. Tony Mannix, previously mentioned, a very rich woman with many important connections, was reportedly very angry and bitter about being dumped. She had bought the house that George and Leonore were now cohabiting. She also, it was later found, was listed in Reeves's will to receive all his assets in the event of his death. Many said she worshipped Reeves, and in her later years had a shrine dedicated to him placed in her house. She also had confessed to her priest that she had hired someone to kill Reeves, according to one person who knew her well. Possibly that was how Reeves's brake line had mysteriously failed weeks before when his car crashed heading down the canyon away from his home. Her husband, Eddie Mannix, was rumored to have mob connections. And there was another big problem for Reeves, according to some people. Some friends of Reeves said that he was planning to call off the wedding to Lemon, and he was afraid how she would take it. That wedding, by the way, was set for June 19th. His murder or suicide happened three days prior, June 16th, after both the fight at the restaurant and back at the house, which made all three, Eddie Mannix, Tony Mannix, and Leonore Lemon, potential suspects. The police also appeared to be behaving in a careless manner. No photos of the body were taken, and the crime scene was not properly searched or dusted for prints. Strangely, Reeves initially had no autopsy, and his body was swiftly embalmed. The ballistics looked all wrong, too. The actor had no burn marks on his hands or face. How had he shot himself in the head with a pistol without leaving powder burns? Despite these suspicions, the L.A. Police Department officially ruled the death a suicide on little more than a cursory investigation. Was Hollywood's police force keeping a lid on the truth to protect Tinseltown from another scandal? And did that scandal involve one of the most powerful men in the movie business, Tony Maddox's husband, Eddie? Perhaps fueled by disbelief that the Man of Steel could ever take his own life, speculation and theories have abounded for more than 50 years that Lemon... Mannix, her husband, or even a hitman were responsible for the death of Superman. Is there any truth to the persistent rumors that Reeves was murdered by a hitman? For this to happen, a killer would have to enter the house late in the evening without being seen or heard by anyone there, not knowing who was in what room. And there were five people in different parts of the house at different times, depending on whose statement you believe. And this in a house which, if watched, was known to be open to many, and often, at night. And the killer would have to find a way out without being seen. And then there's the depression issue. The suicide theory depends on Reeves' reported depression. Some say he was depressed from his failed career and his bad relationship with Lemon. However, others who knew him well, like Jack Larson, who had played Jimmy and knew Reeves well from hours spent on the set, and Reeves' mother, adamantly maintained that Reeves was not especially depressed 
and was not the type to commit suicide. In actual fact, Adventures of Superman was due to return in 1960 with a higher pay packet for Reeves and the promise that he would be able to direct more of the episodes, something he had enjoyed doing on the last three shows of the previous season. He had also lined up a science fiction script called Return to Earth by screenwriter Sidney Fields that he'd hoped to direct, possibly with his early Superman co-star Phyllis Coates in one of the lead roles. Coates was amongst many of Reeves' friends and co-stars who did not believe he would have killed himself. She said he had a good sense of humor and was always kind and sometimes down on himself, like when he toasted her with, Well, here's to the bottom of the barrel. After that season, she got roles in a number of TV shows, including The Lone Ranger, Rawhide, Perry Mason, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Gunsmoke, and others. If anything, it seemed like Reeves' career was on the up. Would the actor, generally described as an ordinary, straightforward kind of guy, really have killed himself in a house full of guests, especially choosing to do so naked? George Reeves' mother, Helen Besselow, was convinced that George had been a victim of foul play. She even commissioned a second autopsy, which concluded that Reeves was possibly murdered. But this had no official status and could not overrule the coroner's verdict of suicide. That second autopsy did find marks, fresh bruises, on Reeves' forearms, suggesting he was trying to defend himself from someone, maybe a gun-wielding, drunken, and angry lover. So where are we now? Fast forward to a 1989 videotaped interview with Leonore Lemon just one year before her death. She's now in her 60s, her face and body ravaged by age and most likely alcoholism, because during the interview which is available with a YouTube search. She asks the interviewer repeatedly for a drink. During this interview, she contradicts herself a number of times when asked about the events of that fateful evening. But the impression any viewer would get after watching and listening to her for 48 minutes is that she is, well, I'll let you decide. Here are the bullet points. She denies that Reeves ever came downstairs. But a later account from Bliss's wife who had just arrived at the house around midnight to join the party, but was still outside the front door, claims that she was peering through the front door window, hesitant to knock, hearing and watching an argument downstairs between Reeves and Lemon taking place in front of her husband. Minutes later, after deciding to turn around and leave, Bliss's wife said she heard a shot ring out. According to Lemon, Bob Condon and Ben Ronkel, whose husband lived nearby but obviously was not present, were in bed in the guest room above the garage at the time the shot was fired. According to her, she did not go upstairs when she heard the shot, but Bliss did. Later, she said she was in shock. As a side note, the shock must have worn off quickly, because, as mentioned, she came back to the house the next day and grabbed $4,000 worth of traveler's checks along with some wine while her close friend placed all the bloody bedding in the shower. The movie Hollywoodland offered three possible solutions. One, that Lemon and Reeves carried the fight upstairs and that she shot him during the struggle. Later coercing Bliss to say that she was with him downstairs and with her telling Bliss, he's going upstairs to shoot himself before the shot was fired. Two, that Tony Mannix or her husband had paid for a hitman who was concealed upstairs. And three, that it was a suicide caused by a deadly combination of medication and booze and depression.
what we do know, because they found out later, was that Tony Mannix had hired a man named Santiago to make the harassing phone calls. He was able to get Reeves' newly changed number because anyone could have called his production office and asked for it. It's possible that Santiago could have cut the brake line on Reeves' car in an effort to kill him. But very difficult to get a hitman in and out of the house with people partying downstairs. Most probable. Lemon was in the house. She had been seen arguing with Reeves twice that evening. Over what? Probably because he had canceled their wedding. And very possibly he told her he was going to get back with Tony Mannix, who had the studio connections he needed. Lemon had admitted that she had used the gun just days earlier. Lemon had taken 45 minutes after the shot to... do what? Possibly clean the fingerprints off the gun, then go downstairs to convince Bliss and the others that she was downstairs with Bliss when the shot was fired, and get Van Ronkel and Condon out of their bed and out of the house so they could be gone when the police arrived? If indeed they were. That would have meant two less people to provide conflicting testimony. And she could claim later that she was trying to save Van Ronkel's marriage. Some of the above information is fact, and much of the above information is stated here to be hearsay. And there is a lot of hearsay regarding the death of George Reeves. And there's a little bit more here to follow. It is interesting. For instance, beginning with, Leonor Lemon was, by all accounts, a bit of a hellraiser. Hard drinking and hard partying, she gave as good as she got and had the dubious distinction of being the first woman to be thrown out of New York's famous stork club for fist-fighting. She also had a reputation as a gold digger, having married twice before for money. Also, Lemon and Reeves had a stormy relationship, but, at least according to her, were engaged to be married. On the night of his death, the pair had gone for dinner with writer Richard Condon, who was staying with the couple whilst he worked on a biography for Archie Moore. According to Condon, Lemon was in a combative mood that night and had made somewhat of a scene at the restaurant. The argument had carried over back to the house. Lemon apparently upset by the suspicion that Reeves had been talking to previous girlfriend, Tony Mannix. Remember how we mentioned Phyllis Coates, who played Lois Lane in season one? She was also close to Tony Mannix. And that night, the night of Reeves' murder, she received a disturbing phone call. In the early hours of June 16th, Mannix called Phyllis Coates. She was hysterical and told her friend that Reeves had been murdered. This was before news of Reeves' death had gotten out, and it always remained a mystery to Coates how Mannix could have known Reeves was murdered, unless she was a party to it. It seems the dark secret haunted her for the rest of her life. According to publicist Edward Losey, who had befriended Tony during her last years as a widow in Beverly Hills. What she had done weighed heavily on the now elderly Mannix. She was absolutely terrified of going to hell, Losey told the L.A. Times. In 1983, the publicist sat by her bedside during her last hours, and knowing she was the last person on earth to know the truth, Tony Mannix confessed all to her priest. She and Eddie had used his underworld connections to have Reeves killed, her devastation at being rejected by her boy had pushed her to the ultimate reprisal. Is her confession credible? Clearly she had the motive, and through her ruthless and well-connected husband, she certainly had the means. But she was also suffering from Alzheimer's at the time of her death, and may have confused the facts with the many fictions that had long circulated about the death of her former lover.' 
She may also have been confessing, having been involved in hiring someone to sabotage Reeves's car, thinking in her mind that that made her a murderer, when indeed it may have been just an upstairs argument between Leonor Lemon and Reeves that caused his untimely death. The ultimate question was Lemon with Reeves when he shot himself. Had she even pulled the trigger herself? Considering her temperament, it does not seem out of the question she may have started waving Reeves's pistol about whilst having a drunken argument with her prospective husband. And one final tribute to the work of Milos Periglio, who served as the inspiration for Detective Louis Simo in the movie Hollywoodland. Here's the story from Spiriglio's website, which has been kept up since his death in 1980 in order to sell his books. Milos Periglio was an author and honest-to-goodness Hollywood dick whose 50s-era adventures are so over-the-top it's hard to believe they're all true. And maybe they weren't. He was, by most accounts, a notorious glory hound, fashioning himself after the TV private eyes of the era, and Peter Gunn in particular, with a nose for celebrity cases and far-flung conspiracy theories. He handled more than 35,000 cases in his 20-year career, and he made sure that more than a few of them gained the attention of the public. In 1959, he was just a rookie, working for the Nick Harris Detective Agency of Los Angeles, when he was assigned to investigate the 1959 alleged suicide of George Reeves, television's Superman. The client was Helen Besselow, Reeves' mother. He swore until his dying days that Reeves had been murdered, and there were certainly some serious questions surrounding the death, both about the evidence and the investigation itself. Nearly everyone in Hollywood has always been led to believe that George Reeves' death was a suicide. Not everyone believed it then, nor do they believe it now. I'm one of those who does not. In fact, Spiriglio served as the inspiration for Louis Simo, the private detective played by Adrian Brody in the 2006 film Hollywoodland, a fictionalized retelling of the life, and especially the death, of Reeves. It should be noted that Helen Besselow had previously hired hotshot Hollywood lawyer Jerry Geisler to petition for a reinvestigation of the case after it was ruled a suicide, although the results of that second autopsy, except for a previously unnoted series of bruises of unknown origin about the head and body, were the same as the first. With no evidence contradicting the official finding, Geisler announced that he was satisfied that the gunshot wound had been self-inflicted and withdrew. He was never able to convince his client, though, and she maintained until her death in 1964 that her son had been murdered. But it was Spiriglio's involvement a few years later in the Marilyn Monroe death case that really put him on the map. He latched onto the Monroe case around 1972, a decade after her death, and became obsessed, investigating Monroe's suicide for more than 20 years, insisting to anyone who would listen that she was the victim of a Chicago mob hit ordered by the Kennedys. He eventually wrote four books on the subject. He was also hired to look into the death of Natalie Wood, although as far as I know, no Kennedys were involved in that one. Spiriglio died of lung cancer on April 30th, 2000, leaving behind a wife and two daughters. He ended up the director of the Nick Harris Detective Agency, the same agency where he first served his apprenticeship. We will never know and all the facts and hearsay and conjecture will never get us to the answer. What do you think? I encourage you to check in at 1001 Heroes Facebook page, or the 1001 Heroes Facebook group page with your opinion, or email me 
at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed our story, and I do ask that you share our podcast with friends so we can become better known. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and this is our story.